Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Liz Franzak, a San Francisco-based writer and the co-host of Truanon, a podcast that began as an investigation into the conspiracy theories and truths around the life and death of Jeffrey Epstein before expanding its acerbic wit and leftist analysis to American politics and the oligarchy at large. Epstein has fallen into a pandemic-sized memory hole, so Liz joined us to discuss the emerging political imperatives of the COVID-19 age. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models hosts Carly Busta and Dan Keller. Let's get into it. Okay, okay. We're speaking today with Liz Franzak, co-host with Brace Belden of the True Anon podcast, which most of you listening likely already know and love. Just a quick bit of background for anyone unfamiliar, True Anon began last summer amid the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy chaos. Initially, Epstein conspiracies were the fodder, but the pod quickly came to be about the very thing that made the Epstein narrative so irresistible, the, to quote the LA Review of Books, rot at the heart of the global elite. So last summer feels like five years ago at this point, but since then, the pod has also covered a lot of the election, including a lot of the excitement around Bernie and now we find ourselves amid the COVID quarantine. So we're excited to take both a macro and also current events scope uh, in the next hour, hour and a half and uh, see what comes of it. So Liz, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. It's like you're like a thousand call of the week probably. (laughs) No, actually it's pretty boring here. You're in Berkeley, right? Yeah, I'm in Berkeley. Okay. I mean, I try to go for long walks, although that's also getting boring. (laughs) <laughs> because you're just like going to the same places. Right. It's just dead here. I mean, I'm happy I'm not in San I was telling you on Twitter, like, I'm happy I'm not in San Francisco just because it's like being in New York. You know, you're just on top of each other and it gets a little hectic and scary. Yeah. I feel like uh, the the density value proposition has diminished a lot right now. <laughs> People want some space. I feel like there's never been a moment for McMansions quite like right now. That's an interesting point. I mean, far too late, we're talking about like, oh, should I get out of town? Should I go to like rural, whatever? And it's like, one, it's too late and you could be infected and that's like terrible. That's the whole point of quarantines. Like you're missing the point. (laughs) Also, it's like kind of a funny reversal happening. I wonder if there'll be a big flight in the like ensuing decade. Berkeley, there used to be a lot of drum circles there, right? And now they're they're no longer happening? I think that's over on the campus. Like, I'm in the opposite direction of Oakland. So I'm, like, kind of away from all the hubbub and also a lot of hobos, which make... I mean, I'm basically in, like, a homeowner's... I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm in an apartment. But it's, like, Berkeley is just, like, one big homeowner's association. Like, there were more Bloomberg signs on my block than, like, any other, which is so funny. Oh, weird. Are there still those little uh, delivery robots that were actually remote-controlled by people? I don't think the technology is there. Or they're really slow, buggy. All AI is, like, I mean, you probably know about this more than I do, but I think it's all a house of cards grift. None of the (laughs) technology is there. 
drone right, deliveries. Right. Would be a really great time for drone deliveries, but the protocol now. I just got a package, and the guy has to like leave it slightly further outside of my door, and then like stand away as I signed the little thing. Oh my god! They're not wearing gloves or masks or anything, so it's just a bit of a some security kabuki or whatever. There's like a walkway where people go for runs kind of below our house and so we observed the police come and break up a group of three. I mean, you guys are a group no, of four. No, it was a group of five. Five. And they oh, broke wow. up to two and three. But um, there were five America cops. America doesn't do any of that. I mean, we don't have anything like that. This is new and I think it's maybe only in your neighborhood. Also, <laughs> they live like two blocks away from the BND, which is, you know, the German CIA headquarters. So I right, think right. they're like, you're getting a lot more patrols than in Neukölln. Like, there's it was literally very just the same guy like, guarding the mafia bar that's closed down below my house. He's fine. There's groups all the time. Yeah. So I don't know. It's neighborhood. I also do, but I, you know, this is something Brace and I always talk about is, you know, it's not just the federalization of America, which is a big problem facing this, this whole crisis, but we just don't have literally any social service infrastructure, surprisingly, including like, you know, um, you know, emergency responders or cops or anything. It's like our police departments are heavily militarized, of course, because they just get the contracts. You know, all we produce in America, our only industrial policy is the military, right? <laughs> but like, there's no coordination. Like, there, there's not even beat cops. We don't have that. Like, there's so many people out in parks and stuff here. Oh, Kids sure. drinking in parks. And you're like, dude, no, like, <laughs> stop. There's plenty of that here too, though. The experience inside imagining the quarantine and then like I go outside to walk the dog and I'm like, oh wait, actually things are kind of normal. And then you sort of doubt yourself. You're like, maybe I am a little bit overreacting, but I'm like, yeah, no, totally. trust it. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of just doubting my own doomerdom all the time. Or Is the mosque closed yeah. in or are they still... It's a Hamas mosque, right? It's an Iranian mosque. There's two mosques, the one really close to me. There was a, a funeral for Soleimani there, and then there was right. a big counter-protest. Oh, right. All just like I was watching it from my balcony. It was pretty nice. surreal. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're closed down for now, so that's... There should well. just be live feeds of your balcony and ours, and that would be a pretty good like spectrum of the Berlin. Right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Two poles anyway, multi Very different vibes. Anyway, but maybe like Dan, Liz, like what's going on? Even like, can we just do like last 24 hour recap? Like it's just so insane. (laughs) Like sounds like America, we can just put those socialist dreams to bed. I mean, like what the hell? Liz, you described it as capitalism's great leap forward, which I think seems basically more, more on the table than ever before. I haven't read throughout the actual bill, but just what I've seen, it seems just like full on corporate bailout, no strings attached, little pittances for people including even a $450 billion fund that Stephen Mnuchin can personally direct to <laughs> buy up any asset he wants, give loans to any bank. I mean, maybe greatly forward is a good analogy in one way, but it really reminds me of post-89 Russia, like mm-hmm. just going to divvy up the resources amongst the oligarchs. And it really yeah. seems like, yeah, you can see the Republicans have gotten pretty flexible on the whole capitalism thing. I think a couple of things that are important to understand about like the American government is that like Congress is largely a functionary at this point. And like, I don't think that we have a functioning and legitimate legislative branch, which is pretty, you know, unique. And so, you know, the Democrats had put forward their version of the bill that had all these extras in it that they could kind of like add in SPR things like, oh, we're going to, get in these things about the Green New Deal or, oh, we're going to get in, you know, whatever. 
knowing full well that that could get stripped away and they could say, okay, well, we tried, but then both the Democrats and the Republicans get what they actually wanted, which was just like you you mentioned, a, a mass slush fund for, you know, whatever large industries are coming forward, which turns out to be almost all of them. I was thinking about this this morning, you know, bailouts aside, you know, obviously there, we were already looking at a global recession moving into the pandemic that was already on the horizon. And you could see it as, you know, capital was leaning emerging markets already, and that has accelerated. Obviously, China shutting down its economy for a month is going to have global ramifications. But the service industry is a relatively new development in capitalist economy. It's only, you know, 40, 50 years that we're really looking at it, but it's completely accelerated into its dominance, particularly in the West, over the past like 10, 15, 20 years. And so there's like a really, I don't know what that looks like in terms of what's going to follow. Trump and all these people, you know, they keep saying, go back to work, we're going to go back to work or whatever. But it's like, to what? Right. Like, yeah. there's no industry to go back to. The scope of this thing is unprecedented. Definitely. You know, you've got both global supply and demand shocks, and then a complete, you know, 30, 40% unemployment in a sector that cannot recover. I, I'm like speechless. I, I think we're really in a place where it just feels like speculation is. It's just impossible because we're past the simple exponential part. Now there's just so many more variables and it's more chaotic than ever. For instance, like, you know, apparently Airbnb and Uber, they want their gig workers bailed out, which is just sort of like, what is, what is a gig economy if all the gig workers are actually on UBI of some kind? <laughs> but the business models, I mean, just the entire business models are completely unraveling. And I mean, I know with, with Airbnb specifically, a lot of the business is just people who take on multiple rental contracts at the same time. They don't own any of the property right. and there's nobody renting them. They can't survive a month or two and any kind of like, I don't know how you bail that out. That's just going to have to deleverage. It'll expose all of this rot that is just there built up into this crazy overleveraged decade, basically. And just seeing WeWork, like WeWork won't exist probably by next year, which is incredible. Seeing that well, kind and of that, just- and you know the important thing about WeWork not existing is that all of these companies and all of investment <laughs> since 2008, it's like all investment and even before that, but you know, accelerated into what you would call like fictitious capital or financial capital, right? But the problem is, is that like okay, WeWork, WeWork collapses, that has cascading effects then through commercial real estate, which is a very real industry yeah. and has like very real ramifications then throughout communities. And I think kind of grappling with that, like I kept thinking the other day, like what the fuck happens to Las Vegas? Well, they're getting bailed out, which is hilarious. But how? Of there's, course. Point, you, there's, okay, think of like the casinos, the shows, the entire industry. Who's traveling? There's no international travel. Right. I mean, it's going to be the fucking wild west. The Las Vegas situation, though, that is like the, the Anthropocene dream to have Las Vegas return back to sand, right? I mean, there's going to be human devastation, economic devastation that's going to affect real people in real ways. But then, I mean, maybe this is the catalyzing event that we need to return to something that's more sustainable. It will be a fascinating microstate in 20, well, that's, 2030. Yeah. 
Mm. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm, you know, as a like vulgar Marxist, I'll say like, you, you can't go back. You got to push through. So I don't know <laughs> if that's possible. But apropos um, of the real estate question, there's this idea that right now employees that may feel they are going to lose their job, they're trying extra hard to demonstrate that they're necessary to their company's operation. So they're sitting at home under compromised conditions, trying really hard to prove that they can work well from home, which is thereby proving the non-necessity of fancy real estate for workers. And suddenly workers are going to be housing themselves. And so, and the companies won't be able to legitimate having high real estate prices. So I think there's like lots of different areas where the real estate sector, especially corporate real estate, is going to implode. I mean, if real estate's value is totally recalibrated after this, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you know, private equity is already very excited about the work from home opportunities, <laughs> including this software that we're using right now. Oh, and, yeah. you know, all the other, you know, there was someone I now I feel bad because I can't remember his name, but this piece is going around the message board. Those don't exist, but you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, people are talking about this piece where there is a guy, he's kind of pushing back on the idea that this is a wartime effort. And the reason he says that it's an anti-wartime effort is because what we're facing is this weird paradox where in order to maintain, you know, some semblance of society, we actually need to demobilize labor hmm. rather than mobilize it. And so what you're seeing is like total sectors systematically having to shut down or retreat indoors, which is the actual opposite of any kind of mass labor mobilization. And so when you bring up the like having to prove your value through your non-labor value in any in a weird way, it's like there's this kind of weird new contradiction emerging. And I think it feels like at least possibly that like history is moving again, mm -hmm. which is at least an exciting, if you know, an equally terrifying possibility. Time is out of joint or whatever. Yeah, Hamlet right, says. Right, like, right. You know, everything is at once stuck and really fast at the same time. Yeah. I feel like time dilation is like the biggest or like, I don't know, contraction and dilation is the biggest uh, experience I've had personally. Cause I have to say my, my daily routine hasn't changed all that much. But just, I've, <laughs> I can't tell what two weeks ago were, and I have to kind of look through a timeline, and I'm just continually shocked at how different mindsets were five days ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's exhilarating and terrifying at once, like you said, but I got to say today I feel bad <laughs> about <laughs> what's going to happen, and I don't think there's going to be very many good outcomes, actually, anytime in the short term, as far as pushing yeah. forward any kind of leftist things. Clearly, shock doctrine is there for, for the taking, but we know who's taking it. And it just, I don't yeah. see how that has changed. I don't, I mean, they talk about a rent strike, talk about a general strike. Um, okay, I, w I would love to see it, you know, but you I You know what's so funny about that is like, I, I, I don't know if you follow like some the like alt light, whatever you want to call those guys, <laughs> like those guys or whatever, but you see like Contbot yeah, and, and, and like Logo suddenly like, what like suddenly can't believe that Trump would side with the bankers and that like <laughs> capitalists don't have workers like best interests in mind. <laughs> One of the editors at the fucking Daily Caller were calling for that shit. And it's like, 
Well, first of all, who's we? <laughs> yeah. But also, like, bro, like, for real, you thought, like, it made me feel a little bit better about kind of a lot of the shit they were slinging some of the Bernie people. Because it's like, oh, shit, you thought Trump was Caesar. Like, <laughs> just as cucked as everyone else. Right, right, right. Like, and it is actually, you know, I mean, one of my, like, terror scenarios I think about is if stuff in the States gets bad and i think there's reason to believe that it it will in the coming weeks look a lot more like italy than anywhere else particularly in new york which is very scary you know if trump continues to side with the bankers and the military starts getting sick we've got a very precarious situation on our hands and obviously the white house and kind of different institutions that control the american empire are very you know opaque but there are very, you know, complicated scenarios that could be at play that seem fucking wild. But again, we're back in the movement of history. And, and I, I just really don't know. I think a lot of things are on the table. Is that what phase two is? Is that what, what, what is phase two? Are we in phase two? What phase are we in? Let's define phase two versus phase one. The way I conceive of it is phase two is a different mentality. This idea that like, that there is a normality to rely on. So there's kind of like a weird spiritual quality to it, I think, too, which is about like figuring out how to be present also with other people through this social demobilization that we're faced with and figuring out how to, quote unquote, do the work, as Twitter leftists like to say, making connections and communities in ways that you've never had to mm-hmm. do before, mm-hmm. you know? So like phase one is just wrapping your head around the fact that things are suddenly different. And then phase two is like, okay, I've gotten past this log level. We love this Venkatesh Rao log level. Like all you can do is look at the computer screen and watch the news stories. You you can't synthesize anything beyond that. And then phase two, you've accepted these changes on this basic level. And then you can get a little more distance and start thinking about how you want to be in this space. You have agency over how you want to be. Yeah, but crucially with others. With others, yes, for sure. Yeah, phase one, a phase one thing is quoting Joker, but I will say, (laughs) like, we have to rebuild living in a society at this point somehow in ways that I think we have never faced as a generation. You know, we've been in an increasingly nihilistic age for a long time. But it seems like it's been ramping up over the past, like since 08, much like everything. How do we like resist that and move away from that? I think one problem, though, is talking about a we when there is no longer a physical community. Like everyone is isolated on the Internet. We already know that's like fragmenting. And I mean, it's such an opportunity. At the same time, the only place to organize is a place that lends itself like perfectly well to total balkanization I mean, it of is ideology, beliefs, plans, whatever. Right. We had it. We were speaking with a with a friend, of, uh, a geographer who was active during Occupy and is working on the Anthropocene. And she's like, 
This is structurally the opposite of Occupy. It's like the opposite of let's all go into the street and be next to each other and find affinity groups or whatever. It is literally the structural opposite of it. Let's isolate ourselves in our homes and then convene on the very platforms that we were thought thinking that we needed to resist somehow but or get outside. A of. good thing to remember about that is Occupy failed. Exactly. Well, actually, this no. is my question. <laughs> right. Like, do we actually think that? I mean, and as fun as it was to be in the streets and to, I mean, I thought it was at that time. I know. I mean, I, I always feel like a grandma when I'm like, back and occupy. No, no, <laughs> don't. Yeah, totally. I'm right there with you. Um, but, uh, but you know, it felt so motivating and it felt so exciting to feel yourself in space with other people who also were fed up with things. But maybe that was the great distraction. Like maybe we didn't need to be as like liberal art school educated art students or whatever running around the streets, you know, playing cat and mouse with cops. Like, that's actually incredibly embarrassing to think about that as like a kind a political action that would precipitate something. So yeah, maybe this is actually like a goal, a silver lining of this situation that we're free of that distraction. Or yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe there is some structural difference that's beneficial. I don't know if I would say silver lining, but I do think that there's a new space opening at least. Mm -hmm. What, however, occupies tactics and strategies like those were pretty much institutionalized through the way we think about left politics over the last 1960s tactics yeah which has not worked and has been terrible I think and I don't think anyone could disagree with that but maybe there are people that do so one the one percent meme came out of it right yeah yeah. I mean that 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 red pilled a lot of people a lot of normies I think to be fair That's the only positive thing I can say about Occupy from my own perspective. Yeah, I think that the question you bring up about how do you mobilize when you're all so disparate and there's all these different kind of, you know, the way that we think of each other. We have to figure out a route to reclaiming the universal, right? That's always the goal. And so the question is, maybe there's a window here with the fact that History is feels emotion again. Time is, like you say, this contradiction that we can't put our hands on. We're structurally isolated from one another. But we all are. Like, right, is, right. There, is there something there that can be worked through? So many of the quote-unquote political battles that the left has been facing, I mean, just, you know, intra-left, has been facing over the past, you know, whatever, five, six years, looks so fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. It's like, have you ever been like, oh man, I can't wait to read about why identity politics is stupid? <laughs> you know, with the like effects of Occupy, it's like, who gives a shit about progressive stack or whatever? And no one has a job. And also, I'm not sure if I can get to the grocery store today yeah, and if yeah. they have eggs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay. it, it's, it's, you know... I don't think there's a way to return to that crap. And, you know, we talk about collapsing industries. I mean, how irrelevant has academia and the media looked, which, by the way, are the only two institutions the left has captured over the past 30 years. And I think those two things, them being irrelevant and the left capturing them, are related. Right. Or the the art world itself. I mean, seeing them try to adapt to this with all these the VR galleries and every institution has a new... Uh, video streaming platform, you know, it's just, yeah, it, it is very funny, uh, the, the massive update. Um, I, I, I am wondering, like, the how, how podcasts fit into this, because it does seem like, 
<laughs> this is this is the moment uh, that you know, and there's a, definitely a little bit of a first mover's advantage for anybody who already had a podcast before this. I think. I mean, I, I just assume that y- like your growth must have gone up a lot just from this alone, right? I think. I think yeah. there is this sense of community that people need more than ever. That this parasocial thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I kind of hate that term, to be honest. When you said it, that just popped in my mind. Which so term? Parasocial, like something that kind of makes it sound like dirty. (laughs) People shouldn't feel bad about wanting to make connections with people. On the podcast recently, like when we were episodes we did about Corona and they were kind of like different for us. And, you know, I told people they could like DM me and like it's been overwhelming and there's so many people I haven't gotten back to and I feel really bad about it. And I try to get to it like every day. But it's also like, I don't really know what else to do. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, even with the podcast, like, I don't want people to feel bad if they like thinking of me embrace as their friend. Like, we are. Like, that's the only thing I know how to do. Like, and so we started doing these Twitch streams. And it's like all these people hang out. And it's just us talking. And like, I also like it because I don't get to see Brace anymore. He's one of my closest friends. So I want to hang out with Brace too. And it like feels good for us to have people feeling good watching us. It's like, it goes both ways. You know what I mean? Like, I really hate the idea of people judging themselves or feeling bad about finding value in these types of new or novel connections. I just don't know what other recourse we have at the moment. I mean, I don't think it's bad. I mean, I I remember listening to college radio a million years ago and also having that same feeling. I guess I don't see the word parasocial as necessarily negative. Like college radio was so good because you could relate to the host and mm. you felt like you were part of their world. Um, we've just had a problem with the radio for like the last 20 years and finally it's come back in the form of podcast. I also think it's it kind of scale does matter and like having that kind of feeling about true and non is very different than like the Kardashian. Like you, yeah. you are interactive. You're on Twitter. You, I mean, it is a real relationship. Like I think in that case, I can see why it'd be it's destructive and maybe a little bit shameful. But I think yeah, the scale really matters. And one thing I will say that's really interesting is I was watching CNBC the other morning, and it like the host was just in her room, you know, and she had makeup on and stuff. But the lighting was a little bit wonky, and she was just hosting the show from the home office. And I think there is something kind of refreshing that like, like actually the playing field is very level, level right now. All the content has equal merit, especially because the media has been not very trustworthy. This is really the moment for citizen journalism, uh, I guess, or at least citizen commentary. No, it's true. I mean, I don't know what's going on on the ground in Seattle. I don't know what's going on. And some of that is like these journal... First, I mean, some of that is like you can't really send people out or they don't want to, but... You know, a lot of it is that we just don't have local media anymore because it's all centered in D.C. and New York. But it's like even those people aren't going out and reporting (laughs) what's going on in the hospitals. Right. I haven't seen any of these videos like I think early on, maybe they're all following Gong, actually, this info. (laughs) But like the Wuhan, there's a lot of one thing that I noticed that like if you read the Epic Times or whatever, they'll screenshot Trump tweets where he calls it the China virus, but they'll just call it the CCP virus. They've completely <laughs> taken they've taken the Chinese virus to heart, but they're like, which is a good point, and it is what Trump should have that said. Is. And I think if he had said that, we'd all no, have been on board. because he can't because of his business interests. Well, exactly. So he can just do 
the racial version. That was such a funny clarifying moment during the debates when Bloomberg was like, actually, I think the CCP is great. And, you know, you know, because he couldn't say shit about mandate of heaven. You know, they really they have a responsibility to their constituents. And yeah, it was it was very funny. So good. I liked Bloomberg a lot because he was like the mask off candidate. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a nice moment for, for a lot of things. This is sort of a meta question, but so you guys started the pod about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. In a way, the media conditions were similar, except for it was isolated around this one nefarious figure. Can you draw parallels between that moment and this moment? All the the, the different interests that are driving the different narratives? I mean, in a way, you're serving a similar position, or would you say it's a completely it's a completely different situation? I've never thought about that. That's interesting. I mean, I think we kind of do that with everything we cover. Yeah. Just that we, I think part of the project is kind of pulling out these narrative threads, not like connecting things like on a red string, like a conspiracy board or whatever. I do kind of like to push back on that. But I I mean, I like the idea. Don't get me wrong. Maybe it's not a red string. Maybe like a different colored string. (laughs) You're definitely connecting strings. But I think they're larger, there's strings that speak to structures and the way that power operates. Right. I, you know, we've talked about this before, but like, I don't think that the left, however we, again, however we want to define that, knows a lot of these histories mm. or even understand, like, I don't know, do you, who, can the left name its enemy? Like, who do they think is their enemy? Do they think Trump is? Do they think Bezos is? Do they think it's the landlords? Do they think it's China? Do they think... And there's ways to talk about all of that. Like, I don't even know if it knows how capital moves. I don't even know if it knows, like, how the military fucking operates now or whatever. Like, there's so many kind of stories that need to be unpacked and told because I, I don't know if anyone else is doing it. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a specifically among the left, those are deficiencies because people just reflexively leftists are not very interested in actually economics. Like, I think that's a pretty yeah. widespread well, like thing, which is ironic. Which is yeah, funny. it's off brand. And, and it's, so they feel um, like they're less of a leftist to spend energy reading the FT or something. It's like, right, they exactly. can't, you know, why would they care about markets? <laughs> it's like, it's like why, yeah, why would you not care about the structure of capital if that is what right, you're trying to right. oppose? Yeah, Marxist who doesn't understand economics, right? It doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think they're, you know, for 20 years, quote unquote, leftists were told that they could understand everything they needed to know about the world through lit theory. Right. Exactly. Right. Or it's like, right. no, oh, I studied comp lit, so I'm a Marxist. It's like, well, <laughs> okay, maybe, but also like, talk to me about the labor market. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I hope that's not like, a crazy thing to say. No, I mean, I it's true. I hope realize it's been a fucking disaster. I mean, but even with that Agamben text, I mean, practically in a material sense, you're in Milan, it's February 28th, and you're telling people that it's bad to stay in your homes because you feel that the government is going to exercise privileges that they'll never revoke. It's a real miscalibration. I mean, scope neglect. And I also think it's, you know, I think a lot of, you know, let's just say Verso books have dated themselves already and they haven't even been published yet. I, but I was talking to Angela Nagel the other night and it's like, 
you know, is the only populism left rioting? And that's a dangerous situation to be in, by the way. I'm not suggesting yeah. that, you know. That, that is actually worrying to me, though, because I mean, from what I've seen, I, and I think you pay attention to these spaces too it seems like a lot of people who are just like kind of full trump base on the trolley end kind of chan culture they've kind of gone full like raider prepper like neo-nazi revolution <laughs> recently with covid and are really really their mind is on violence right now and thinking that there will be a breakdown and this is like their chance you know and that's really worrying me yeah, I mean, yeah, I the problem is that there's a lot of like, yeah, the right accelerationists are right. absolutely in the place to seize the moment. I don't know where the left accelerate. I don't know yeah. where the Verso yeah, accelerationists I mean, are. Uh, I, first of all, I should clarify that like, I'm not endorsing any of that. Like, I'm also very terrified of that. I'm just trying to, you know, oh, yeah. analyze what's going on. But I think that that speaks to kind of this devolution or evolution, however we want to look at it, of the populist moment because there wasn't actually a left populist moment. There was only a right populist moment. So if populism is dissolving into a more, you know, I don't know if it's anarchist or accelerationist or fascist tendency, that's very dangerous. I I was also in a group, I guess it's a Facebook group. And yeah, it was Jim O'Neill, who's a Peter Thiel guy and Patrick Friedman, And I mean, Patrick Friedman was one of the first people who bugged out him and his uh, wife. They were going to do a video blog of every day of Quarfantine. But I think they got, it literally was two, day two and a half was the last video. And it was like 20 people watched it. So I don't know what they're up to, but they were definitely (laughs) the first people. Are they seasteading? Patrick has been like moved away from that for for a while. I think mm-hmm. they've really distanced themselves just because, well, it's been a fiasco every time they've come close to it. So yeah, he has this landsteading thing now, which is yeah, just charter love- cities. Oh my god, the charter city thing—that's going to blow up. Oh yeah, definitely. Because oh, of course, even with yeah. COVID, like Singapore is the model right, of success. Yeah, you know, right. the successful model, and these people already think of Singapore as being the successful model that they want to live in. Yeah, I mean, maybe Vegas will just be. <laughs> Prior to this, basically, you know, all of the emerging markets collapsing. Right. Uh, Mexico, Brazil, Africa. I mean, capital just fleeing that. So there's a lot of opportunity if, you know, equity, private equity can free up and investment can free up in these charter cities, which is fucking right. terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that's also the thing is like, what happens if the economy reopens and the only stores are open are Walmart and Rite Aid? Uh, that's all it is. And it's like they're already going to get the bailout. I mean, small businesses, even if we're going to give out, what, $6 trillion or $10 trillion, I heard actually recently. It's $6 trillion officially with some estimates that it's actually going to be more like $10 trillion. I don't know how much of that It'll is repo and loans. And what they like don't even put on the books. Right, of course. And like the shadow banking thing, whatever that is, of course, is arcane. But it's actually going to be the biggest wealth transfer, but it's not at all towards the people whatsoever. Maybe just the barest minimum to keep it going. But yeah, I feel very... The thing that's... Yeah, and this gets back to our earlier conversation where it's like talking about this hitting the service economy is so like just thinking through it. It's like, okay, well, how much of that slack can Amazon pick up? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we'll be surprised to see how much. Right. Obviously, it's not going to be all of it, but you know what I say, capitalists great leap forward or whatever. 
then it accelerates into just work from home people, pod people, bug men, as the right has been saying for so long, and the people who serve them. Right. Right. That are gig or Amazon workers. Right. That live in their, you know, Amazon WeWorks or whatever. Yeah. We see that divide. Yeah. Right. Also, I mean, what's the civic space then? Is it going to be these kind of fake harbor fronts that are just designed by some real estate company for some tax break with like global chain Fapiano? I guess not Fapiano. They're going under. Fapiano's gone. You know, it's kind of bad, just mid rate. Like cheesecake factory, also going under. So maybe uh, maybe it's wrong, but like, <laughs> what will the civic space? Fast casuals like? over. Yeah. I mean, I had this. I was taking a bike ride as I often do outside of Berlin, and you notice there's like a cafe line. Like there's a point at which there's just like not enough hipsters, freelancers who are just paying four bucks for their third wave coffee, and there's just nothing. There's like there's like discount grocery stores, and there aren't even bars. I mean, there's really nothing that because I mean <laughs> cigarette. I love. In the suburbs in Germany, they have cigarette vending machines oh, in like the middle of like random like but neighborhoods. Are, yeah, just like an intersection or like, like yeah. not halfway down a yeah, like really randomly really deep in the suburbs, and there's just like an outdoor cigarette vending machine. Right, and that's it. And um, I think you have to scan your ID now or something to get it. All yourself. of them, you stick your, you stick your ID, ID in the in slot. Now. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I always think back to the the horrible avocado toast debacle, the New York Times, and it's like what all those millennials were paying for was really a civic space. They were like tithing so that they could have a cafe to hang out in to see their friends. And they therefore were able to generate a civic space. And that was actually really necessary if they were going to mate. Like it was a really like primal thing. But you're going to I haven't see, heard that take before. Well, the, there you the go. Avocado There's, toast comments. I like that. <laughs> that's, that's my <laughs> take for the day. But um, but I was just thinking, I mean, what will the civic space look like when it is just like Amazon and like Postmates and work at Homers? I mean, I get Zoom, right? I mean, I guess, I guess there will be some little fringy cafe culture, but like, what will that civic space look like? I mean, those, I think, okay, just to kind of flip this though, I'm going to take the anti-accelerationist take for a little bit of optimism. It's not that optimistic, but we'll say. I think it was like in 29 or 28 that Schumpeter or whatever kind of predicted the same thing was going to happen in the world economy, that there was going to be like a cartelization of the global economy in the wake of financial disaster. Now, that didn't happen, right? And of course, some really bad things happened. But that is not what happened, in fact. And the British Empire completely, you know, it had already was in the midst of collapse, but it completely collapsed and global supply chains completely collapsed. And, uh, and you know, not even talking about what emerges after that, but sometimes we overestimate and romanticize in the overestimation the power of the state. We don't with capital, I'll say that. If, you, if we want to divide those two, which, okay, fine. But... I do think that sometimes we say like, okay, well, there's, it's going to be this insane surveillance state and it's going to look like, you know, Gattaca and blah, 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 and whatever, whatever. And it could, but it might not look like that here. Like there is a scenario where capital says, "Mm, fuck it. I'm just going to go to China because at least they're planning shit. And I like that better. And we've got Singapore and South Korea and Japan is kind of recovering. Okay. Right. 
And then you have what you brought up, Daniel, and that this actually just then looks more like Russia. And I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, this is so cheesy, you know, just the idea that we can return to normal, but it's really, it is going to be even more extreme hyper normal. And then suddenly it feels a lot more like post-Soviet mid-90s Russia, you know, than, than a new world order, perhaps. Right, right. And what an interesting thing, though, because, uh, you know, you know, you brought up, you know, what artists are going to do and whatever, because I was thinking, you know, you think about cafe culture and I was like, oh, my God, is the theater like not going to exist? And the theater was having such a, a big comeback, at least within the art world, for sure. And everyone, Absolutely. you know, there was such a there was such a backlash against net art and post-internet art and this desire for intimacy and bodies occupying spaces. And uh, yeah. Basis. And it is really funny to be in this place where you can signal your how pro-social you are by <laughs> being antisocial. It's just yeah, uh-huh. it's a it's a kind of a funny moment there. But I'm wondering, what do you think is like? Uh, we we use the term left pill as opposed to red pill, but let's say red pill. But what do you think? Well, yeah, what do you think is the biggest like red pilling moment or non-official narrative that emerges from Corona? I think it's gonna be the actual scarcity. Right. I mean, that hasn't hit yet. Well, you know, it's like, it's different than 08, I think. Absolutely. Because at that moment, at least, it was like, oh, wait, I can't get a media job? Or, oh, I can't get, or like, oh, liberal arts didn't work out for me in a way that I thought it was supposed to. But then every kind of, everything kind of like shuffled around and, you know, there were still opportunities, but not really, you know, whatever. But this is like okay, I don't have, I'm not married and I don't, I don't know how to get food. It's the fucking real, you know? Right. Right. I think the isolation is going to be really difficult for people. Depending yeah, I think, on how, how long that goes. And also just your own living conditions. I mean, like at least, I mean, in, in Carly and Julian's place, you live together and you're kind of already were working from home or from WeWork, or not WeWork, but from some co-working places, whatever, the factory. And same for me. You just can't imagine people who are people who are already a little bit isolated, or actually even people who are used to being really social, how traumatizing it must be to be like in the situation for a few months. I don't know what it's going to do to people's politics. But I do think it's like, yeah, if you see with Kantbot, like this is very much, you know, the Epstein moment for him, I guess. It's funny, um, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find it really, I, I, I mean, I always thought he was a funny poster and I had a lot of... Kinda, I like those two boys. I think they're, they're very clever. Yeah. Although, like, yeah, yeah. They, you know, they should, they could take a little humility pill, I think. That's but I understand sure. why they don't, by the way. Yeah, so. it, would be, it would maybe be... I feel like, like softly affectionate towards them. <laughs> I mean, you, if you like, you see that one video, the German idealism, it's hard to not feel a little bit affectionate for him, right? I, I mean... Um, Anyway, but what do you think like the power of conspiracy theory is now? Like, do you think that there's a useful like? I mean, clearly you do. I, I guess you 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 find that as a way of kind of just illustrating what power looks like. But how does it? Where, where does it fit in here? Especially when a lot of the a lot of the conspiracy theories that I that I've read about them are really partisan and about U.S. bioweapons or Chinese bioweapons. And I don't really see if there's like there's not really a class component to a lot of those things. Um, I have heard the Epstein. Uh, dead man switch theory. I wonder what you think about that. What is that? This was the dead man switch that was always talked about that he would release a pathogen on the old world if oh. he did die. 
That's hilarious. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's. Oh, that, and then perhaps you know where? Okay, where this is the other is question. We, in our Discord, <laughs> many people ask, "Where is Ghislaine? Can you tell us?" I think she's just. I think she's holed up in England. In England, not in Israel. No. Not in Israel. Okay. I think she's like in her London penthouse, and asking like, for money. Still and yeah, somehow. her lawyers are just taking whatever. Um, my understanding is, we, I talked to someone who used to work with her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend, I guess, or ex-fiance. I don't know. Uh, and you know, he basically said that she had been talking with the authorities like all summer and throughout Jeffrey's arrest. So I just, I don't think like there's any, it's all like media kayfabe or whatever. I don't think that like, I, I think everyone is very well aware of where she is and she's not going anywhere. It's just that okay. we don't want, mm. right. you know, like, yeah. I, I don't think like MI6 is on the hunt for her. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I assumed not. I assumed she was in a safe, a safe place somewhere. With this idea of like, we're very good um, at lefty doomer hyperstition. It's like, we're quite good at imagining these bad scenarios. But I was listening to Kara Swisher with um, Chamath Palihapitiya, that's how you say his name, whatever. One of these like tech bros who has like a billion dollars plus and like master of the universe types. Um, a guy who... Um, put his whole family in quarantine after their skiing trip to the Alps, probably like one of the COVID spreaders to America. But he, he was like very, you know, like, yeah, I think it's time to shift the optimism to other frameworks in Silicon Valley. And I was just like, oh, so cringe. Can we just like suspend our positions for a moment and imagine what they're imagining? Like what those narratives look like right now? Like what is the Silicon Valley narrative machine spinning out at this moment? What are they imagining? the next 18 to, I don't know, 36 months are going to look like? Do you have any guesses, but maybe being in proximity and Berkeley or Dan, just like in your telegram groups? Dan would know probably more than I would. My guess is that they're more concerned about their families and where their money is going. Right. But I think just in terms of master of the universe level, I kind of think the same. Like, I don't think it's a, coincidence that we haven't heard shit from Bezos. True. Well, he did dump his stock very at a very opportune moment. Oh, that was sort of, that was a message, <laughs> right? And Bill Gates, like formalizing him stepping down from Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, that was like last week or something. But, you know, the market tanked and like, I guess to like not be disruptive. Bob Iger or, left. Yeah, exactly. Right. There was a, there was a, a lot of CEOs that left. Yeah. That stepped down in January. It's right. unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Again, we don't have a functional legislature because that one, there should be like an investigation into that, but they can't even <laughs> true. investigate shoot. themselves with the most like in clear cut insider trading <laughs> oh. scandal. Oh my but, God. I mean, any and other time in history. There. They're even incompetent at insider trading. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I know. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Um, but I guess maybe more, okay, it's not even master of the universe, so that's true. Um, they're probably feeling the same. But just like these, you know, tech having this, like, diehard optimism. Like, everything's always framed in, like, progress and better, and it's going to be fine. And, like, you know, we have to have hope. And, like, just this, this like, inability to ever look at any kind of darkness. Like, I wonder what those narratives look like. Because, I mean, right now, there cannot be a lot of hope in Silicon Valley. I mean, like, every single st- tech startup is being defunded, I'm sure, right? Like, 
there's no capital to be put into it. I mean, creative destruction, right? right. I think that there's plenty of excitement. Yeah. I, one thing I would say that is interesting is like, so Elon Musk has been very much on the COVID is dumb trip. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that is just because he literally lost like half of his. You know, net worth in those. You know, from whatever the crazy I mean, stock. I literally think he tweeted that to pump the stock, his stocks. You know, I mean, like, even if it wasn't, it's just emotionally driven by that. Whereas, you know, like, you look at like, I, I mean, I haven't heard I mean, Peter Thiel is pretty quiet all the time, but based off of like the people around him and how they're reacting, they are taking it seriously. They don't think it's dumb, and like you said, yeah, they're concerned for their own immediate safety and their wealth. And I don't know how they're thinking about. You know, I, I do think there is a lot of tech optimism in that group. At least in the Facebook group that I'm in, and it's because like people in the group are sharing their progress and like doing protein folding simulations to work on a vaccine. So like there really is, mm, you know, actual right. like if there is any crisis that will and can be solved by a tech yeah. and and you know big data, It'll it be is biotech. this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and biotech. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think that maybe it really means like the the tech lash, however real that was. I think it's going to go away after, especially if there's some, you know, gee whiz techno solution to this. The amount of money they're spending uh, in response to COVID, would that like, would that amount of money be enough to totally switch the world to like green energy? <laughs> don't they yeah, have like, like a dollar? About- don't they have a dollar amount though on like reaching our climate change targets? And it's I, I I'm so suspicious of any of those dollars or the the amount of money it would take to solve world hunger. It's just, yeah, that's just like unless you assume that the world is that financialized, uh, it's not right. true. But you know, it's not that simple. I, I still not, just yeah. know question resources, not about money and and labor and and you know and logistics. Like real and, resources, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, exactly, right. yeah. I guess I'd just say from like even a rhetorical standpoint, I feel like coming out of this situation. Like any issue that costs lives that they need $50 billion to fix, like it's a very good opportunity to be like, we spent trillions on COVID and now you can't put up this for, I mean, this is a crazy issue with money in general in the world. I was listening to something about the the locust plague in um, Ethiopia or Eritrea or wherever and they said like in the big, like early on, they kind of knew it was going to happen and they needed two million dollars from like the UN or something to generally like like take care of it and 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 they needed two million dollars and they couldn't get the funding for it. And now of course like I mean that issue of of, yeah hundreds of millions maybe more because it's gonna be compounded by COVID. But it's just like I wonder if this will just in terms of public consciousness rhetoric like uh, recalibrate the idea of like money the amount of money it takes to solve a problem and how it shows it's possible now right i mean i i think that's a place where like the, the sort of like financial illiteracy comes to play like people not knowing what a repo market is versus a grant but rhetorically i think it is very useful for sure like you're saying i mean how can you convince people to like pay their income tax on their little shitty job now, when you know that the government is not run on tax income. That's just very clear. I got into a little, I wasn't talking to one of the MMT guys the other night, and uh, Rohan Gray, who wrote the, the Mint the Coin portion of the Rashida Tlaib's bill or whatever. Right, Mint the Coin. I was talking to him about it, and I was like, you know, I actually don't love Mint the Coin, 
because I'm just like, this is a rhetorical trick. You don't actually have to do it. You know what I mean? Although I think the idea of Trump having like a platinum coin with his fat face on it. I love it. I love it. Right. I love it so much aesthetically. It's like hard for me to like resist. (laughs) Yeah. I want it for that reason too. Just for the photos for sure. I saw some, I forget who it was, but some conservative guy on Twitter posting uh, like optimistically all of the different jobs that are uh, hiring now. And it's like Dollar Tree, Domino's, and it's just the worst jobs. And that's what they're going to offer. It's just going to be the worst jobs that I guess maybe they'll be paid sick leave now or something for them. And yeah, I don't know. I just don't think that people are going to accept it, honestly. I really do think that there will be... What Rohan was saying, which I did like, actually, is he was saying, no, the point of the trillion dollar coin is that it does get through to people how absurd the entire, the entire, you know, Pete Peterson model is of how like government fiscal spending works, spending and taxation. I think there's a hard limit on how much like ideas shape reality (laughs) um so like i i I don't i don't like to put any kind of premium on things awakening understanding in mass amounts of people I, i i just think that without any attention to real material changes and also i mean you know just to put my cards on the table without any kind of vanguard shaping where that energy and understanding is coming and going, like it's just not possible. But don't you think that Epstein was an idea that that was this kind of thing that really did change, not necessarily change reality, but people got people got pilled, right? I mean, I don't know. Did they? Did they with JFK? I mean, maybe, maybe the they, wrong they kind of pill. Shot the president on live television, and we just went on with everything. Right. I mean, it's you know, it's. I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I'm not like, you know, I shouldn't talk shit about my own stuff, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to explore with the, you know, I'm not, I'm not discounting that. And I do think a lot, of, I do, you know, I think for a subset of people, it was a like, oh shit, they just did that. But, you know, on a mass scale, I don't think that that that's where that kind of, where that change happens. I just, it's, right. you know, I, I think it's the opposite actually. Mm. I don't know. People talk about now being such a big time of opportunity for some kind of change. What kind of change that is, is left to be decided. But, and this is a question that's been going on for years, but how can the left talk to regular, normal people? Most people just run on this like BIOS, like this very basic operating uh, system level. Something makes sense or it doesn't. If you need to explain it in like several steps of abstraction, like it won't click, it won't jibe. And that's, I mean, I think why humor actually is really important for the left and even why the dirtbag left has been so successful is because there does need to be that little just pure dopamine hit kind of excitement behind mobilizing mass support. But I mean, I do wonder if the left still is going to be able to talk on a BIOS level, on a simple level. On like of, a meme level. On a meme level. Yeah. Like if you can't explain it in a meme, like you're not going to get mass support behind it. And I think Bernie was pretty good at that, actually. But I mean, if we say academia is kind of like irrelevant now too, like why are we still speaking in like academic terms about everything? Or why are we still so focused 
on like these really complicated explanations for why because the people on the left care more about their own careers than they do about mass politics right and it's a form of signaling for them so for them to use those terms or use those structures is to signal to their peers more than it is to like really want to affect any greater change well impossible employers I mean I just think again you know this is what I was talking about with academia and the media it's like well if industries are going to collapse maybe it'll be good if academia and the media does yeah you know like I don't, I don't know like to bring it back to the art thing this is kind of what I was getting at with the like theater you know if, if theater was going to exist anymore and it's like well maybe like people who have nothing to lose are going to actually want more from their life and will start to want to be in spaces that are more like lower class but still artistic spaces. Like, that's a real possibility. I mean, that's what happened, you know, in England during the fucking plague, right? But, like, there's a, there, is a, there is a version of the future, an avenue where some of those kind of spaces start to emerge. Look, it's no coincidence that the campaigns, you know, we're talking about Bernie campaigns, that the other presidential primary campaigns that were fucking so steeped in the, like, academic consultant HR niceties, they fucking collapsed. It's like, who gives a shit about like, I mean, remember that there's like that clip of Elizabeth Warren. She's talking about like how she's going to have a trans kid approved secretary of education. And it's like, why is a child approving a like cabinet position, is it because you don't trust yourself? It makes absolutely no sense. It's not even academic at this point. It's like HR. Why is everyone on the left trying to be HR? No one likes HR. Totally. <laughs> well, because a, a big part of it is, well, of like, let's say rad lib left is just yeah, yeah. about etiquette and manners, you know? And obviously right. you see that in the UK discourse, especially. There was a there was an opinion, like a, a poll of how Latinos or Hispanic people wanted to be referred to themselves. I think it was like 70% uh, Hispanic, less Latino, and one one percent Latinx. Like mm-hmm. it's no, it's it, and who is that for then? You know, and, and who are these gestures for? It's not actually inclusive. It's uh, and if you're just constantly forced into ad- advocating for the most extreme edge cases at all time, like how are you going to get back to the universal? Well, not only that, but it's a you know, there's this, another better way. Uh, it's like. Why is the English language colonizing the, the Spanish language? Of course, yeah, Latin, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right, right. It's yeah. complete. It's a you know, and that's the thing that's so wild is that so so much of the logic that undergirds a lot of these exercises is insanely pro- I mean, to use their term, problematic. Where it's like suddenly you start to hear people advocating for these, it verges into some of the same logic as like white supremacy logic, where it's like everyone agrees that there's something inherently wrong with white people or (laughs) inherent to white people. It's just you disagree whether it's good or bad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, identitarian, I mean, identitarian started as a right-wing thing and clearly, yeah, right. Well, and it's, you know, it's been, it's done a bang-up job of breaking up the left. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Um, and and also just providing a vocabulary that's just ripe for, you know, misappropriating to also probably use their term. Yeah. But But again, none of that matters anymore. Right, yeah. 2020, as much as 2016 was a revelation and 2015 just feels like ancient history, already 2019 and the squabbles we were having. And I mean, I got to say, even like the snake emoji moment, it seemed really innocuous then, but now it's just sort of like, 
but what? How did that happen? How was that six weeks ago? You know, one thing that um, we were on like a massive video call with like sixteen people or something, and Benjamin Bratton was part of it, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, state of exception is the wrong term to use for what we're in now. It's actually a state of revelation." where a lot of the structures that just are unsustainable, whether it's this like identitarian politics or whether it's how things really work, like how the government really works or how money really works, like, you know, printer goes burr or whatever. It's like all being laid bare. And so we should think about this less as a state of exception than as one of revelation across the board. Well, absolutely, because one month of disruption for any, if any system isn't resilient enough to, to handle like a month of disruption without falling apart, I mean, yeah, it's not, I, not even a month. That's, right, I mean, that's all it took to reveal weeks. to reveal all of the mechanics that's of it. Where, like, I would, I want to push back because I, th- or just a little bit. Like, I think it's a mistake to think that that anything will happen or mm-hmm. that you can right. put pin your hopes on any of this turning out any kind of way, including oh, I seriously that this agree. Is leading to a state of revolution. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would say is that. You know, we say like, oh, how does the left talk to normal people or whatever? Well, it's like, well, we're not in a good situation if the left is the only one that's in a state of revelation and everyone <laughs> else is in a state of exception. Right. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, is in America, you know, and I would say probably predominantly through the West, people want to get back to work. Right. People want to work. People want to work. People want to go back to normal. Right. I, I don't want us to get, and by us, I mean, you know, everyone, the larger us, like stuck in a moment of like solipsism of what this now like new age will mean Mm -hmm. without understanding like how people who are not in a position such as we are that very well could just transition to pod life or bug man life or whatever, like are in. Because to them, it isn't a state of revelation. They don't give a shit about how money works, the federal government. They don't care about repo markets. They don't care about the Fed. They don't care about international trade. They care about it if it's affecting their farm. But they don't care about, you know, FX markets or whatever. You know, it's like like a lot of things to talk about. But then it's like I'm also it's like so hesitant because it's like I really want us. Like, I want the left to not occupy this, like, again, like, solipsistic academics, like, area. Yeah, I think specifically by state of exception, I think it was turning on the on Agamben's use of it. Like, we're in a state of exception where the government is able to do shitty things and you don't have power to resist it. I mean, that said, like, we do want things to go back to normal, but we want them to go back to normal in a different way. And I do think there's also a real risk of massive disappointment. If you are somebody whose job is, you know, working from home in the culture sector, there is a real risk of depression and disappointment because, you know, with when you're remaining in the realm of the theoretical and dreaming, you know, and you're you're not able to access any of the power levels that actually reshape the city. I mean, yeah, it feels you feel it, you feel helpless when things go back to normal. Perversely, that may be like onto something because that is actually how normal people feel especially in America, who are very already predisposed to fearing the government. That's just like in the American DNA. And like, and part of that is some of the news that they've been told. But a lot of that is naturally, one, they're suspicious of the government. And two, they don't, they're not actually wishing for the apocalypse. 
And I, and I think that there's a dangerous current in some of this that I've seen where the left is almost hopeful for an like a, a, an apocalypse. Yeah, I was saying this is totally a dangerous mentality. I mean, as much as I do want systemic changes and I do want massive changes to the way real estate works, it could cause a lot of pain for a lot of people in a really, really serious way. Well, what's also dangerous about it too is like, okay, we want revolution, but there's no revolutionary party and there's no revolutionary right. yeah. moment. Right. So pushing for that, even conceptually, is seeding all of that ground to the people that you're supposedly up against, right. tech people, the petrodollar, you know, CCP, whatever, you're basically saying, well, I want revolution, but I don't even want to be a part of shaping it. Right. Um, right. You're saying that, but what, right. you know what I mean? Right. Like, right. But, and that is, that's just pure nihilism then. That's just, that's just death drive. I'm a hardcore incrementalist. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like now I'm sounding like Zizek or something because I'm like, well, maybe there's something there. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, I do think. You believe that, the, that he already published a book, right? I, <laughs> I, I want to read it. I feel that he hasn't even written half of it yet. I mean, he, you know, he just like writes and rewrites stuff he's already written. Right. I love that. Like, he's the last eccentric left in academia. They've purged. It's like you purge all the Marxists, and even the people who call them Marxists aren't Marxists. And you purge all the personality. Yeah. So it's like all these people who fucking publish whatever bullshit that literally no one cares about. Totally. Can't hold a candle to him. It's like, sure, maybe he's saying the same shit that he's been saying for 20 years. But one, he's got a point, And two, he's funny as hell. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure he writes it, though? Or does he dictate it? Because I can imagine someone, like, sitting next to him. And he's, like, gesticulating and saying all this stuff and spitting. And the person is, like, typing his words and, like, wiping their, like, spit he's off their face. He's a super spreader. Like, like, screaming yeah. like, out of the He's his claw, face like, constantly. Oh. Everyone that I've talked to too says that he's like personally one of the nicest people you've ever met in your entire life. And just like so genuinely gentle and kind. And it's like, there's another rarity in academia. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that doesn't even, so any, any like academic talking shit about Zizek, I'm just like, shut the fuck up, man. I mean, academics in the seventies used to be like rock stars, like that whole schizo culture, semiotex crew, like they'd show up to class, like, you know, like bare chested in a leather jacket. I mean, and mean it, you know, or like it was like natural or I mean, whatever. I'm probably like guilty of now quoting Chris Krause, but anyway, what, you know, that's been the whole problem, you know, 2014, 2015, is that, you know, it, there's no space for transgression on the left. Right. And the part of that. There's no the space for problem, even doms. Yeah, right. Part of that problem is that culturally, a lot of ideas are hegemonic. Yeah. <laughs> So this is where you get reactionary movements. Yeah. And it's, a, it's you know, I'm sure you guys have lots to say about that, but that aesthetically, that's very dangerous. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. You know? Um, well, I have another question for you before we wrap up, but um, yeah. one thing I have to ask you as like, you know, one other woman and a podcast, it's like in this pod left zone, like why, what, and maybe you've reflected on this to some, in some way, why do you think it is so heavily weighted towards like straight dudes? And I mean, I know that there's like Red Scare and there are different women who are also podcasters, but the audience is still predominantly male to the best that I can ascertain. I don't know. That's a good question. I honestly, like not to, mm-hmm. 
I just like have not thought about that. I, maybe that makes me a bad, I'm like gender traitor or whatever. No, but like, I mean, I just have not even considered that, which is funny. Um, Let me ask it a different way because I actually okay. don't think about it that often either, except for that I have two guys that I like podcast with. And sometimes I'm like, the female voice just doesn't carry the same. And that, and I come up with whatever theories. But, um, but I guess the other question is like, where are the women? Like, where are they? I mean, I've always That's had more interesting question. Yeah, I think it is, but like, where are where what what are they reading? What are they listening to? What are they interested in? How are they organizing? Like, where are they? I and and, and it's strange, and I don't even know how to tap into that. I mean, so for any, uh, we have some really great women on our discords, but just the majority, where are they? I don't know. I mean, I've been surprised. You know, I've had a lot of women reach out to me, but. Um, I do think that there are, you know, I'm not trying to be cagey, but I just mean that I, I just don't think that there are spaces for dissenting opinions on the left. Well, cool. Julian, yeah. do you have any other cues? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think so. But I think, you know, any, any, anything is possible is the real, Everything is possible. A lot of possibilities seem a lot more plausible than they did just because, yeah, like as they use a financial term, the implied volatility is a lot higher. Buy gold, Dan? <laughs> okay. Stonks tip Honestly, of the day. I, I have to admit, I literally buy almost gold? did buy. I, I, I'm not a gold bug, but I I tried to order uh, one of these 50 by one gram little, like they're like these little Damn, cards that you can baller. break off individual grams. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, there's a I, lot of I have to, I have to that, secure like, some of these gains ago. from Wait, my Doomer but I, I got a different, I got a different <laughs> idea because there's a ton. AliExpress, you can buy fake vacuum sealed one gram gold bars for like $2 each. Fake gold bars yeah. are everywhere. So I want to get into like testing devices for real gold. Oh yeah, definitely. Because if gold that becomes a standard, then like, everyone will need those. I gotta trust my instinct. I have, you know, I, no gold's I have, going up. I'm buying I gold. Think, I'm not a gold. The, the, not only that gold is going up, but the price of assets. gold, paper gold, like derivative gold, is not going up that much. But there's actually shortages now of physical gold, and it's one of the first times where there's a demand shock of gold. But then like. Gold miners are shut down. Like the Swiss gold mines are shut down right now. But see, this so, is where the real is now is now injecting itself back into exactly. the capital market, which is like horrifying but also exciting. Absolutely. Like, like countries are shutting borders and hoarding oil. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's literally happening. Like we were talking on Twitter, and I was like, "Dude, the e- do you guys think the EU is done?" I can't imagine it surviving in its current form for more than a few more years. There wasn't but enough solidarity. How do they go back to free movement? Yeah, How do you I reopen think Schengen, Schengen will stay. Schengen but, will stay. But and that's the, a, yeah, I think so too. No, I don't know about that. Oh, I, mean, I, I think Italy, Italy look at, could. Look at Hungary. Look at Hungary. Yeah. Like, I think this is like everyone who's like, here's the shock doctrine attempt for authoritarianism. He suspended parliament uh, indefinitely, but at least until the end of the year, rule by decree. The borders are completely shut. For even for like other EU foreigners, whatever. Uh, Not for that, capital. I, yeah, it's, it's you know, um, and they're going to still probably take EU subsidies, which is of course well, the rift, right. I don't know. I honestly think that um, this was like a very good wedge where like with Italy not getting supplies from Germany, but they're getting, you know, Cuban doctors, even though that's a show, and Chinese respirators. It's really just like well, also, the beginning at the end. It's all, I don't know, yeah. 
Belgium. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like hitting Italy and Spain the hardest. They were already the most volatile in the union. Right. And I always thought Italy had the be- better shot than Spain because Spain's leadership was so aristocratic. I can't imagine them. Like, right. Yeah, I just yeah. think Brussels is dead. I think the whole thing is dead. I intuitively, I definitely feel the same way. I don't think it can exist. A lot of the the base cases for why it should exist, uh, yeah, they just it didn't happen. They didn't. There was no EU wide response to this crisis, and so right. What happened to the New point? Deal for Markable. Europe? The David Adler, what? the 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 Varoufakis New Deal for Europe. What happened to that initiative? Yeah, well, there's a COVID well, epidemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well. Well, yeah, Liz, thanks for spending your morning with us. This is really awesome to have you on. This Um, was fun. Have you on? And if you're ever in Berlin, like, hit us up. I mean, I don't know. We probably have lots of friends (laughs) here. Here's when we can travel again. Yeah, exactly. Um, Sometime in four years, we can give you a tour of the BND Bau perimeter, (laughs) the the CIA building perimeter. (laughs) But yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Liz. (laughs) Ciao. Bye. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast. We hope everyone is safe and cope thriving. By joining the New Models Patreon, you can become part of the for real active community on our Discord channel, as well as listen to all of our podcasts, including Topsoil, our weekly conversational show. There's also live streams and a whole lot more. So join us at patreon.com slash new models. See you next episode.